congratulations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the week of Friday, July 24th of the year 2020. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children? Of all ages, I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again, and so glad that all of you out there are back with us, or at least most of you should be back with us. Uh, If some of you are away this week, that's okay. We assume you will catch up with us again in the future, as this program isn't going anywhere, and nor should you. That's that's my spiel. That's all I have. Perfect. And uh, this week, I'm the second voice on the program, as I always am every week. Good. Yep. I can't do this by myself. <laughs> no, it'd be weird. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this I, week, I am Dennis, the man who thinks the writers of 2020 used to write for Bonanza. <laughs> I, I assume you have a reason for referencing a uh, long-since-past uh, television program. Bonanza, an old Western to some of our younger listeners out there who may not be familiar with what Bonanza is. A 61-year-old show? Yes. It's yeah. a 61-year-old show that was an hourly primetime Western that uh, dominated ratings for a period of time when there was only two or three channels on television. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm, I've been listening to a podcast about Bonanza recently, not because I'm interested in Bonanza, <laughs> but because I'm interested in the people who are on the podcast. You know, it's a comedy podcast, but, um, yeah, w- without selling some other podcast on this show, um, it's, it was basically made, um, <clears throat> reference, they basically made reference to the fact that, uh, the show is kind of bananas and it seems like, you know, they just introduce tons and tons of characters for no reason on a whim, along with like weird ideas and people die for no reason, like people that you don't get attached to die and, Dramatic music flares up and just <laughs> random things happen to the point where sometimes they think, were these all rejected pilot episodes for other shows or like pilot scripts that they just kind of needed scripts for this Bonanza show? So they just kind of cobbled together whatever they could and just worked in their main characters just a little bit on the, just on the side, just kind of like, okay, well, as long as we get, you know, the, uh, I don't even remember the name of the characters, whatever they are. As long as we get some of them in there, it'll be fine. It's an episode of Bonanza. Like, apparently one episode is basically an origin story for Mark Twain, (laughs) which one of the characters on the podcast basically makes a note of, like, the main characters in Bonanza don't actually need to be in the episode at all for it to serve its purpose. It's basically a story about how Mark Twain is, like, a hero to a town of people who, you know made fun of a judge who was a corrupt judge who couldn't be bought by the railroad who was trying to do a land grab on people. It's like, why are <laughs> that they shoehorned the main characters of Bonanza in just to kind of go off all rootin' tootin' guns a-blazing for no reason <laughs> in a couple of scenes just to kind of make it a Bonanza episode. That's... That sounds crazy. And of course, it's also reminding me of the time Mark Twain made an appearance on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. In the holodeck. But that made more sense in the grand context of the show. He wasn't on the holodeck. Oh, that's right, too. They no, traveled in time. was actually Mark Twain. That's right. And they brought him aboard the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. And because he was a friend of Guinan's. <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation is a crazy show that you should watch if you haven't before. I'm just putting it out there. Uh, you can listen to us review all of Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> on our uh, upcoming podcast called uh, The Arcade Reviews, 
Star Trek The Next Generation, where we go episode by episode in reviewing uh, each episode of Next Generation. Should that be a thing we do? Let us know your thoughts on that. Uh, that is just an idea we have pitched out there. It is an idea floating out there in the world. Uh, let us know your thoughts on that. Should we actually follow through with that idea? We have just posited a couple of ways you can get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on it. Uh, you can email us in the long form if you still write in that style, info at the arcade show dot com. You can hit us up through the social media if you prefer the uh, quick, shorter message that uh, so many people are preferring these days. We are on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. Uh, are we on base, off base, side of the base? Uh, is that is that a bunt? Is that a home run of an idea? Are we shortstop right now? Like what's going on? Or are we way off in left field? Exactly. Just picking our noses, waiting for something to happen because it's left field. Yeah. And, and let's say that this idea goes through. Will it get lost in the sun? Ooh. <laughs> that's true. We'll see. Time will tell. Yes. Also, neither one of us really plays sports, so that's uh, that's something to consider with this analogy. I used to play sports. I used to play baseball. Yeah, I mean, I played hockey when I was a kid. Of course, now I have no ability left. No, I struggled to do half an hour in the elliptical without dying. So, you know, that's that's the level of fitness I have. Hey, you need to dial it down from the highest tension, okay? You're being not, too hard on yourself. I am not on the highest <laughs> tension. Let me tell you what. <laughs> I was trying to give you credits. You yeah, but re- we're rejecting it with a uh, strong backhanded uh, volley. Hey, if there's one thing I'm good at, strong backhanded volleys. <laughs> Arguably the only sport I'm good at. You finally found your calling in life, but sadly you are not good enough at sports. <laughs> yes, self-deprecating retorts, however. Ooh. You have a PhD in those. <laughs> yes. Dr. Dennis. Yes. Dr. Dennis the Downer? <laughs> no. No, I'm not a downer. Well, you shouldn't be. I mean, you did just kind of bring things down with that. Well, that wasn't called for. <laughs> well, what can I say? Not everything has to be good. <laughs> as 2020 has shown us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as well as... um but the ludicrous leadoffs are about to show us. Indeed, the ludicrous leadoffs being those two news items that are always an extra special kind of special. The news stories that uh, may have not come across your wire, but they certainly did come across ours because you have more important things to focus on in your life. Keeping gainful employment, paying your bills, making sure friend and family situations are all as uh, well maintained as they can be in the current situation of the world. We are here to uh, find those uh, very special ones and put some extra light and levity into your day. Our first one uh, plays off a rather quaint idea when you used to get physical copies of games. Yeah, remember that whole old type of transaction that you would engage in? Delivery method of uh, a gaming experience? Uh, Perhaps you've stood out in line in front of a game store in the past, waiting for a midnight release or something? Yeah. I, you know, I will buy a physical copy here and there, but nine times out of ten, I'm just going to buy it online because it's easier. Absolutely. Remember, uh, even in the olden days, when on, I mean, a console now, that seems crazy, and on PC, that seems like even more ludicrous of a uh, an idea to buy a physical copy of a game. Yeah, you like you have basically like there's no reason to believe that Steam will ever disappear. So Valve's making so much money, I doubt it will. Yeah, so as long as you have a, a 
a Steam account, anything you buy in Steam is going to be there forever. So why would you even waste space on your hard drive with games that you're not even playing? Like, just delete them from your computer and you still have them. So that's sort of how that works now, generally. And, and, and a yeah. lot of people have taken uh, taken that as their delivery method. Yeah, and if not Steam, then, you know, the Epic Game Store or, like, the EA Origin or whatever else. GOG. And GOG, yeah. GOG's the other one. But there's, like, an, any number of ways. It seems like every major company has their own sort of at least form of storefront where you can buy the game online. Absolutely. And the idea of a physical copy of games these days... Uh, particularly PC games, very much fallen by the wayside. Yeah, you can still do it, but, you know... They're, they're harder and harder to find. They're harder and harder to find, and yeah, it's like... The size of games now are starting to get to the point where... And well, not just the size of games, but like the size, like the size of almost like day one patches and stuff that you have to get usually for games as well is to the point where it's like, well, why would I get the disc if I have to like download 90 gigabytes or whatever anyways of some sort of data. Like, no, I'm just going to just gonna get the download and just download it once. Who cares? Absolutely. So uh, every so often you will see a, a game release in some sort of physical edition, uh, some sort of limited edition, 200 copies with whatever added in extras, uh, steelbook case perhaps, map of lay of the land, uh, whatever else. Uh, a very limited run, premium price, that kind of deal to justify the uh, unusual nature of that PC game releasing in a physical form. But most often that's maybe a one or two disc set and perhaps there's an extra disc of content, uh, director commentary, uh, soundtrack, whatever the case might be. So, you know, you're looking at maybe two, maybe three discs uh, mask, max at uh, those sorts of instances. And those instances are rare. And you mentioned the size of games these days is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Ever yeah. increasingly ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, granted, we don't usually see things on DVD anymore, but like, if they were on DVDs, DVDs have what, a capacity of 5 gigs, 4.7 gigs or something? Double-sided DVDs, 9 gigs at best? Blu-rays, <clears throat> there's some games now that span more than one Blu-ray, and I think a Blu-ray is about 50 gigs. Absolutely. Which is absolutely crazy to think that so much data condensed into one form, but a crazy story that kind of ties all that up nicely in a bow is this one that we found on Eurogamer the other day from our friend, your friend, and mine, Wesley Yin Pool, that Microsoft Flight Simulator, in Europe at least, is going to be available in a physical form. And given the fact that DVD uh, data size is, uh, or capacity is, somewhat limited, it's maybe 4 or 5 gigs, and the fact that uh, Microsoft Flight, Flight Simulator is a very large game, there is a goddamn lot of content in Microsoft Fight, uh, Flight Simulator, not Fight Simulator, I no. keep wanting to say that. That would be a more fun actual game, as opposed to a simulator, which I argue is not a game. But That's true. But it's an experience. Yeah, that's an experience. It's a simulator. Yeah, that's right. So Microsoft Flight Simulator in Europe coming on physical copies. Okay, fine. It's coming on a 10 double layer DVD set. 10 discs double layered to fit all the content from Microsoft Flight Simulator into these discs. 
It is being done by the publisher <clears throat> Aerosoft, who struck a deal with Microsoft to uh, ship this physical version. And it is, uh, to this point, only available in Europe. If you have the means to play European releases on your particular setup, go for it. Maybe this is something that interests you. If not, then move right along. But Aerosoft's Mathis uh, Mathis Koch wrote in a forum post said, uh, and said, quote, Aerosoft will bring the two boxed versions of this venerable simulator to customers in Europe, including 10, 10, exclamation mark, double layer DVDs and a printed manual in a spectacular box. It is an ideal way of entertaining the new age, or sorry, new way of entering, not entertaining, this is not entertaining, it's entering <laughs> the new age of flight simulation. End quote. So, yeah, this is a hell of a thing. So, you know, I was going to make a mention of, uh, well, me and everyone else who remembers the time has now, or will, I'm going to make a mention now that everyone else has already made of the fact that this instantly reminded me of the 90s. (laughs) Like, Like, I wasn't really a PC gamer, but like, you know, I had friends that were. And oftentimes, you know, I would kind of laugh and look at how ridiculous it was back in the pre-DVD days, pre-CD days even, when games would be released on floppy disks. Like, it was not uncommon to have a game that, you know, had, you know, the installation process was like six disks. It's like, install disk one, reading from drive, copying information, blah, 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 done. Eject disk, insert disk two, blah, blah, blah. And like, this would be a very time consuming process. And cause things were slow as hell back then. Mm-hmm. Now granted, that's not really the case anymore. Like I'm with solid state drives and like these like new Blu-ray drives and stuff that can read DVDs like insanely fast. Like you're not going to be waiting like nineties times, but still like <laughs> the whole concept of like done insert the next, next disc is a very, old antiquated idea that I thought we were done with that. I was glad that I thought we were done with. It's like people who are nostalgic for thing who are nostalgic for things like cassette tapes or VC VHS tapes and stuff. It's like, no, I don't miss rewinding tapes. No, I don't miss having to like, you know, press the fast forward button and hope I went long enough to get to the next song. No, I don't miss those days. Those days sucked. It's like being nostalgic for 56K internet. Yeah. Tying up the phone line as you try to download a song. Yeah, hoping that no one calls because, that you know, as soon as they do, oh, now your internet gets screwed. Like, mm-hmm. depending on what kind of plan and modem and stuff you had, some people had just tied up the modem and left a busy signal, but other modems would just, like, cut off and let the phone call through, which was super annoying. So if you're wondering if the box version uh, will be, the, the final one will be playable, is it just all data? Yes, it's a lot of data, but Aerosoft is saying that the DVDs in the box will contain all of the game world apart from the updates that Microsoft and developer Asobo will release uh, between, I guess, the moment the discs are released and then the actual, I guess, release of the game. So when you install, you'll get an update from the server. Yes, that's right. Even with these discs... <laughs> you will still get an update when there's an update to install. So you're not completely devoid of updates for this game. Oh, of course not, because that's not the time we live in. Certainly not. Uh, 
Uh, Matthias Koch of Aerosoft also writing in the blog post, quote, the boxed version makes it possible for people on a slower internet connection to get the SIM installed without downloading the content. So the simulator is in every way 100% the same. The boxed retail version just gets you a nice box, printed manual, and about 90 gigabytes you do not have to download. There's no difference uh, between the boxed retail and the version that Microsoft sells you directly, end quote. So if there's no difference, why would you buy this box? Yeah. Of 10 DVD, 10 dual-layer DVDs for the same price and the same content. Are people really that nostalgic for lots of physical crap? And, like, here's the thing that, like, maybe people don't remember as well. If you haven't really bought a PC game... They're not like console games or DVDs, that, like movies or whatever. Like, they had huge boxes. They don't just have, like, usually they don't just have, like, a DVD-sized case that you can put on your shelf along with all your other DVDs. They have random box sizes. <laughs> like They do. There's no standard form factor. No. Like, I remember one of my friends had, like, a sizable stack of... PC games, like I remember seeing some of them, like Zork Grand Inquisitor was one of those, or Myst, Zork Grand Inquisitor, and I think he had Final Fantasy VII on PC. They all had three different box sizes, and the Final Fantasy VII on PC didn't have, like, it wasn't even a rectangular box. What was it then? It was like a, like, from what I remember, it was like, I want to say kind of coffiny shaped, but not, not coffin shaped, <laughs> but you know, like some kind of like more diamond kind of like, mm-hmm. so it's like, you can't even like have like a reasonable shelf. It's kind of like board games now. We're through where board games are all kind of like whatever sizes and stuff like, but that's kind of what PC games are like. And it's kind of like, yeah, like, do you want to keep going back to that? Like, I don't know. So some people might, if you, perhaps are in an area of Europe with slower internet, um, which seems hard to believe since Europe is pretty advanced with their internet connections and speeds. I don't think this is an internet thing. I think this is probably just legitimately people want the physical copy thing. All right. It takes all kinds in this world, I will say that. Uh, then those people who want the physical copy will be shelling out 70 euros for the standard edition and 130 euros for the premium edition. Both of them will contain 10 discs. That's 10 discs that will take up space somewhere in your domain, which uh, it might be a smaller apartment, uh, some studio apartment, perhaps in Paris, that... Uh, you know, not right on the Champs-Élysées or anything like that. Uh, of course, who can afford that? But in the outskirts, you know, something smaller that you can afford, maybe a you know mere 400 euros a month. Of course, you're sharing it with two other people. Yeah, and they have to go down the hall to get to the bathroom and, you know. At, at least there's a bakery on the corner. It's true. And it always smells like garlic. Yeah. Down the hall. <laughs> Just someone is always cooking with garlic. So there's that. Uh, you will have... To find space for 10 discs in your European domicile. Yes. Now, again, you mentioned the the box sizes, and these are DVDs. They will have their cases to them and whatnot. So that's that's not unsubstantive. It's not it's not nothing. I mean, DVDs are thin, and you can make thin cases nowadays. 
and whatnot. Certainly not the 90s. This isn't like the 90s where everything was just a standard CD jewel case in a ridiculously oversized box. Yeah. Or sometimes, in some cases, it would be, I guess depending on the game, it would be in some of those paper sleeves where, like, they were all sort of together in some smaller box inside a bigger box. Mm -hmm. But the box was bigger because the instruction manual was bigger. And the instruction manual is only bigger because it was in eight languages. (laughs) So, you know, like... It's true. Yeah. So that is the thing that's happening in the world. Microsoft Flight Simulator coming on 10 discs in Europe. Fun times. All right. And you still have to download updates once everything's installed. Yeah, of course you do. Surprise. So let's move on from there and kind of tie in uh, or tie back to a story that we spoke about, I believe, last week. The very extensive price that was set for a copy of Super Mario Brothers, the original one for NES at auction. Uh, we spoke of the six-figure sum that it sold for from Heritage Auctions and the fact it being such a rare item given that it was from a very, very early run, very early print of those NES uh, boxes as it still had the cardboard hanging tab on the back. And also it was still sealed, perfectly sealed, and was rated a 9.4 by the grading organization. So ridiculously mint sold for six figures. And I believe it was last year. Yes, I recall last year just being a crazy year where rare items, collectible items, nerd items would sell for ridiculous prices. Yeah. Like, towards the end of the year, I think there was a magic card that sold. Then, you know, there was a bunch of other things that sold. But I think the big one from last year was the, uh, it was a Pikachu Illustrator card that sold for 195,000 United States dollars. That is correct. Yeah. Which, that's basically a house. Yeah. And then if you convert that from American to Canadian, that's, that's a good portion of a house. Yeah, or like here in where we live, that could be a very nice house just by itself. It could be. Yeah. That, and for one Pikachu, very rare. And let's be clear, it's an, it earns that price from the rarity of it because the Pikachu Illustrator cards, uh, super rare, perhaps the most, uh, some of the most rare P- uh, Pokemon cards in existence as they, uh, were only given out as part of uh, a contest that was, I believe, run through Famitsu Magazine in Japan, where about 39 or 40 of these cards were given to contest winners. And uh, of the original batch of 39 or 40, only 10 remain in existence. So last year was the, all-time, was the record price for that Pikachu Illustrated card selling at auction for 195,000 US dollars. That record has now been broken. Yeah. Another one of those cards has sold at auction. Uh, this one was bought by an American, uh, purchaser who is choosing to remain anonymous, which is the right thing to do. And they have purchased this card for, uh, I believe the sum of 25 million yen, which roughly equates to $233,578 and 75 cents. Yeah. So, now, uh, Kotaku actually clarified that, uh, or actually, I think they're looking for clarification because in the Japanese language, or sorry, the English language release of this Japanese news, because it was done through a Japanese auction, 
site or Japanese auction company called Zen Plus, they were saying that the card actually went for 250,000 US dollars. So there, there is some clarification needed, but regardless, both numbers are bigger than the previous record. Absolutely. So the, uh, auction price for the Pikachu card last year was 195. There was also a, a premium attached to that of about $30,000. So that brought the total purchase price for the poor sucker last year up to $224,500. So that, that, well, we didn't know at the time. We didn't know there was a buyer's premium attached to this auction. Yeah. So whether that was put on there by the seller, by the auction house, well, some sort of upcharge, service charge, whatever the case might be, if you have the uh, simoleons to dole out for a $200,000 Pikachu card, I guess an extra 10% tax on top of that is uh, just something you're going to have to live with. You're also not the type of person that I ever want to meet. <laughs> or I want you, I want to meet you to try to hit you up for some cash <laughs> because you clearly have some cash. It's true. You do. So yeah, should take me back to your place. Show me all your collectibles. Yes. Just give me a couple of those really nice things. You know, just a couple of them. Yeah. No, I'll just sit here nicely and, and twiddle my thumbs while you go pour a drink or go tend to something in another room. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is all. Yes. Is that the Pikachu card right there? Hmm. Well, well, time to be hitting the old dusty trails. I, uh, gotta be going. I've got, uh, an early meeting in the morning. So yeah, yeah, just, uh, I'm just gonna back away from you. And this is how, uh, we, we exit, uh, where I'm from. So yes, goodbye. I'm not turning around for unrelated reasons. Yes. That is all. Yes. Over to same. Yes. So, oh, yeah, I, I always have a friend waiting in a car ready to go for me. Bye. You never can be too careful these days. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get mugged in this neighborhood. It's a little sketchy looking, so notice the scratch on one of those Mercedes, so <laughs> can't be too careful. So, yes, the current record price for a, Pik- well, a Pikachu Illustrator card slash Pokemon card in general, single Pokemon card, now sitting at 25 million yen or $233,578.75. So we can ballpark it to about $250,000. Yeah, quarter of a million dollars for one single little piece of paper Mm -hmm. that has a picture of a Pikachu on it. Yes. If you try to use it in the actual Pokemon card game, you're an idiot. (laughs) Just straight up, you're an idiot. And I hope you lose. Yes, the card also has no effect and has no value in a Pokemon card game whatsoever. There's there's no benefits. It literally is just uh, an image of Pikachu and a little note on there saying, congratulations, blah, 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 blah. There, there's no status. There's no benefits. There's nothing to it. So if you also are just doling that out, what is wrong with you? What else is in your deck? Did you stack your deck with the craziest cards? Is this how you high rollers play the Pokemon card game? <laughs> you just put 9.5 rated mint cards into decks that you paid quarter of a million dollars for? Is this a rich and nerdy version of Russian roulette? <laughs> I'd like to be able to get to that point in life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, though, what kind of 
I don't know. Your life would have to take some pretty weird turns to get to that point, I think. Oh, absolutely. But I'm up for the ride. <laughs> Fair. So, fingers crossed it happens, but uh, if it does, I will gladly report back and tell you about my adventures along the way. But uh, until that time, here I am. But uh, moving off the ludicrous leadoffs to other more substantive news, uh, speaking of money, uh, Psyonix is certainly a company that has money. They are the development studio behind the ultra-popular game Rocket League, the car combat soccer game that uh, has, uh, well, I don't want to say taken the world by storm because it's now five years old and marking its fifth anniversary, but the really major announcement this week that Psyonix is completely redoing the business model for Rocket League, and this is in no small part to the fact that Psyonix is now owned by Epic Games. Well, not now, but they've been owned for several months. I believe last year is when uh, Epic Games closed the deal, if not the year before. But So Epic Games owns Psyonix, and so the, re- the TLDR is that Rocket League going free-to-play and also they're going to launch on the Epic Game Store. I mean, the second part for sure makes sense, but the first part, I mean, I guess they, they're trying to recapture the lightning in the bottle that happened with Fortnite. I mean, on one hand, I would say maybe they might be a little bit late with the whole Rocket League thing, because, you know, it's been around for quite some time now, but there are people that haven't played Rocket League, I'm sure, at this point. I mean, myself really included. I haven't really played it. I just kind of, I've seen it in videos and stuff and it looks kind of fun, but now that it's free to play, maybe this might just be the hump that people need to get over where it's like, well, final, final try it. Absolutely. Now, I mean, there will still be, uh, some form of monetization. Epic Games isn't crazy. They're not uh, totally altruistic and uh, charitable. You don't throw money around like this just to not make money in the end. That's crazy. You exactly have to have a scheme to get some sort of money out of it. So Rocket League is going to be doing away with the loot boxes, the uh, battle pass, the online store, everything like that, and just going with free-to-play, probably some uh, minor microtransactions available for Josh Keys, Knickknacks, Bric-a-Bracs, just uh, cosmetic items. Yeah, Knickknack, Paddywhack. Bone. Absolutely. So the change is going to be happening, quote-unquote, quote later this summer. There's no defined date. We are basically at the end of July now. I don't know how much later they're going to get. In theory, there's one month we really consider summer left. That's August. Maybe a bit of September, but September, that's really fall. I mean, I know I'm getting into semantics, but who really thinks of September as summer? You don't. That's when you go back to school. That's the fall. Yeah. So uh, at some point later this summer, quote-unquote, Rocket League will be updated, uh, and it's going to be a shift that is uh, going to, I guess, go along with a huge new update to the game that's going to change, among some other things, tournaments and the challenge systems. Uh, there will be... Uh, gains to cross-platform progression uh, for item inventories, rocket pass progress, and competitive rank, and uh, some of those features will be requiring players to create and link to an Epic Games account, because again, this game is going to be on the Epic Game Store. 
Now, it's said that it's going to be exclusive to the the Epic Game Store, but it will also be uh, compatible with Steam. So if you are someone, one of the likely many thousands and thousands and thousands of players who have this game through Steam, you can still use it and play it on that platform, but you won't be able to download it for the first time, download it anew through Steam. Yeah. Well, yeah, download it. You can download it anew if you've, if you already own it and if you've deleted it, it'll be like, like we said earlier, anything in your Steam catalog, anything in your Steam library is always going to be there that you purchased. This is true. But you can't, like it's not going to be for sale anymore. Yeah. To new people, uh, looking to discover and download this game through Steam, you will not be able to. Yeah. Only the Epic Game Store. And that, is Epic uh, Epic Games getting some payback for the investment into Psionics? Yeah. Needing a uh, staple. So uh, we'll see how this uh, all plays itself out. Again, we don't have a uh, full date or any sort of window beyond later this summer, which really isn't much of a window. It leaves basically a four to six week period where it could happen. We shall see. Maybe they're going to push it right to the very end of summer and say, oh yeah, September 30th. Who knows? Yeah. But if you are on Steam and kind of worried that you're going to be left out in the dust, uh, assuming that you are someone who already had this game through Steam, uh, well, then don't really need to worry. In the blog post heralding this announcement, Epic Games or slash Psionics did say that they will offer or Steam players will have full support for future updates and features. So you're not going to be left out in the cold, which is a good thing. And it would be a very jerk move to simply do that to the uh, fine people and players on Steam. Yeah, exactly. Of which there are many, I dare say, more than there are on the Epic Games Store at this point. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. Given that uh, Rocket League was on the Steam Store for five years. That's quite a fan base it's built up in that time. Or oh, a yeah. user base, I should say. Absolutely. So, there is that. But let's move on to another story that I guess could have been a ludicrous lead-off uh, if we were talking about physical copies. Although the size of this one is not nearly on the scale of the Microsoft Flight Simulator. No, but there are aspects of this that are that make me want to get it, despite the fact that I already own this game. So I own this game on Steam, or not on not Steam, sorry, on uh, on the Switch. And it is available, I think, for other systems as well now. Um, I believe so. I think it's on, like, at least PlayStation? Uh, PS4, I believe, yes. Yeah, but uh, anyways, this game, it kind of, you know, won the hearts of people when it came out last year. Uh, it was the Untitled Goose Game. Which, you know... One of those indie hits. Yeah, it's an indie hit. It's a fun little weird game. You know, geese are jerks. Everyone knows that geese are jerks. Absolutely. You know, what better way than to... So, I mean, it was it was such a great idea to play as a jerk goose, being a jerk goose. Doing jerk goose things to people. To innocent people. Who hasn't wanted to do that? Yeah. So And get away with it all because you're a goose. Yeah, you're a goose. Like, so what if you stole someone's picnic or their glasses or whatever? It's, you know, you're a goose. Whatever. What are you going to do? Arrest you? Just fly away. Yeah, exactly. Run. O- who's going to arrest a goose? Who's going to do anything to a goose? Nothing. Yeah. And that's the whole crux of the game. A really simplistic art style. Uh, and just an overall aesthetic that just endears a lot of charm. Yeah. 
and a really unusual mechanic too, just of being a jerk goose. <laughs> yeah. And you know, all the things that come with that, like you get to kind of like honk people behind their backs and scare them and, you know, flap your wings and do whatever and grab things and run away with them. And it's fun. But yeah, so we're, we're talking about this because, uh, it's coming back into the, uh, the consciousness a little bit because it's getting a physical release, finally. It is. It's uh, getting a special release. Uh, the uh, people at Untitled Goose Game, the developers behind it, are teaming up with IM8Bit, who do some really nice copies and physical editions of things uh, to produce what is called the lovely edition of Untitled Goose Game, which will have physical copies available of the game for both the Switch and the PlayStation 4. So this lovely edition will include the game, but also a quote-unquote very nice box, as well as cartridge slash disc, a hand-drawn town map, and a quote 24-page retail catalog featuring useful items and objects that a goose might enjoy collecting. And a sticker. Yeah. Now, the part that um, interests me a lot, it's not part of the release, but uh, because it's IM8-bit and they're kind of typically known for their vinyl releases of soundtracks. True. They are releasing a vinyl version of the game soundtrack, uh, which features a double groove, which is always hilarious when it's pulled off well. Um, I've only ever experienced it with one other record, but it's it's really trippy when you're not aware of what it is. Because what a double groove is, is basically, you know how records have a single, usually when you, when you put the, the needle down, it goes into the groove and then it just starts playing mm-hmm. from there. The double groove is there's two grooves that run in parallel and they're just kind of like two spirals that go beside each other. So you, it's, I like, unless you have like a laser eye where you're looking at exactly where you're placing your needle down, you might be getting one or the other groove. Monty Python released a record called the Instant Record Collection, where it was a three-sided record, as they called it, where the first side was, you know, just a single groove, but the second side was a double groove. So depending on, like, you might be listening to one of the grooves or the other, so there were different bits depending on which groove you were listening to. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So this <laughs> this soundtrack features this double groove, so um anytime you play it, it might go one of two ways and you can't you don't really have a say in which one of the grooves you're listening to. Nope. And uh can you think of uh, a better way to do this soundtrack for a game where you play a jerk goose? Yeah, I mean you're basically causing chaos in the game. So what better way to celebrate that than you know, like why not let the chaos spill into every other aspect of the things that surrounding the game, right? So it, it's fun. It's not harmful chaos. It's just kind of like harmless. And I mean, you're going to, you're going to listen to some good music anyways. Like it's a good soundtrack in the game. Absolutely. Some, some light jazziness to it. Yeah. I, uh, I hope that's, uh, on both grooves in this game that, uh, uh, you, the, uh, listener, uh, will have some honks thrown in randomly. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. To make you think like, oh, what the hell is that? You know, as you're just, Maybe coming to the end of a, uh, uh, just a long piece that's really just kind of calming and soothing, you know, between the, that and the next track, honk. One single honk sound effect to jar you out of whatever peaceful bliss you have entered listening to this album. 
and then right back in yeah. to calm smooth jazz. I always thought it would be funny to release a double groove album where one of the grooves is an album that's not yours. That's like some classic album or something like dark side of the moon or like a Beatles album or something. And then just like, see what people say when they're like, so why was side two, like the second side of Abbey road and then have other people being like, what are you talking about? But do not announce it ahead of time. It's a double groove. No. (laughs) Or like have someone be like, wait, what? Then pull the, pull the thing off the record, like pull the needle off, then try to put it back down. Then they're back in the right groove. They're like, am I going crazy? <laughs> what the hell's going on here? This doesn't sound like that band. What, what is this? You come here, come here. You boy, <laughs> you boy. What record is this? <laughs> Why it's Christmas record, sir. Get out of here. Fetch me that goose in the window. Yes. That that was untitled, fetch me that untitled goose game album in the window. There. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, one of the, uh, aspects, uh, here in this, uh, year 2020 that, uh, seems to be a never-ending bag of crazy cats, uh, that really isn't being mentioned is the fact that this year marks the 35th anniversary of Mario, uh, and the first Mario game being released on NES. So that is an aspect that really isn't being mentioned or played up really by Nintendo too much. I'd imagine they would have had things in a normal world, under normal circumstances. They would have had something at E3, part of their infomercial, their uh, Nintendo Direct infomercial. They would have likely had one, had a lot of focus on Mario, perhaps revealed the uh, uh, Mario collections that are, are rumored for this fall, this, that, and the other thing. So we don't have that, but we do have some drips and drabs of... Uh, uh, other people doing things to honor and celebrate Mario this year. And they are part of what seemed to be an expressed uh, effort on the part of Nintendo to develop partnerships with other companies and really license their visuals and their brand for other unique products. I think about a year or two ago, we spoke of the Super Mario cereal that was uh, being done by General Mills. Or no, probably three years ago now, because it tied in with Mario Odyssey. Yeah, so that might have even been four years ago. Well, time's a blur at this point. <laughs> it sure is. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone, right? No. Thank you. So time's a blur, but Mario cereal. Uh, you know, um, you know your usual array of Mario back to school supplies and that kind of thing. But Mario is not as leveraged and not as licensed or branded to the eyeballs as. Uh, you think it would be, given the popularity, given the the notoriety, given just how well-known a game franchise the Super Mario World is. So perhaps Nintendo, under the leadership of Shuntaro Furukawa, uh, their new young president, trying to change that, and one of the ways is by striking a deal with Hasbro to do Mario-themed games. And, I mean, tabletop games, uh, not video games, that would be stepping on some toes there. Hoo boy. Yeah. But no, news this week that Hasbro is launching two Mario games into the uh, realm of your enjoyment. Uh, both of them set for launch on August 1st, and they're not specifically branded as part of a 35th anniversary for Mario or anything like that, but uh, the fact that they are being released here in this, the 35th year of Mario, uh, would lead me, at least, to believe that they are part of an effort to get Mario out there. The first of these games is... Super Mario Jenga. Now, this isn't usual 
woodblock Jenga with uh, just simply some characters slapped on them, or sorry, etched on them, painted on them, whatever the case might be, and then you play under standard Jenga rules. Uh, I seem to have noticed in recent times Jenga has done some special editions via licenses, partnerships, rights, and whatnot, that it's it's the base game is Jenga, but they play with the rules and, and do some different things to it. This version, I believe you have a spinner, and you take turns moving your different Mario characters, be it Mario, Luigi, Peach, or Toad, up around the tower, and the idea is to try and, I believe, get to uh, the Bowser layer at the top, if not surpass it, uh, before I think you get burned, depending on what you land on the spinner, that kind of thing. So it's all plastic, or it's mostly plastic, and plastic pieces, and you have a spinner, that's okay, but it's all kind of branded with Mario and Mario theme. The other thing they're releasing is Super Mario Monopoly. Now you might be wondering, yeah. isn't this a thing that's already out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah kinda. They've had Nintendo Monopoly, They've had, I believe, Mario Kart Monopoly. They've had, uh, I believe, Monopoly Gamer Edition, which I believe my nephew has. Don't think he's played it, but he also has way too much, so. <laughs> I'm not worried about my sister hearing this program, so I can make those comments. Perfect. So, uh, but yes, so in that vein, but this is, I believe, just straight up Super Mario Monopoly, where each of the squares uh, or properties on the Monopoly board are really just areas from different Mario worlds or different Mario games. So the very first property square after you start Go on this Monopoly board for Super Mario Monopoly is World 1-1 from the first Super Mario Brothers, and it just kind of goes from there. It goes through uh, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario World, I believe there's Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, uh, Super Mario... Uh, Galaxy and Super Mario Odyssey. And the last two, the must be recency bias or just whatever reason, but the last couple are, uh, New Donk City and, uh, I believe, uh, just one of the, yeah, well, one of them, uh, Broadway and Park Place. One of them is New Donk City from Mario Odyssey. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I guess it's a very hoity toit thing, but still, like, you'd think, the most fashionable one wouldn't be Peach's Castle. Oh, and Bowser's Kingdom from uh, Mario Odyssey is also the uh, next most uh, expensive property on this board. Not Peach's Castle from Mario 64? From from anything? From anything, really, yeah? yeah no, no, not in this edition. Weird. I guess it's going through time. Like, in a chronological order, as you progress around through the board, you're going from oldest to newest, uh, and I guess... Recency bias, that which is the newest, is the most important and valuable. Therefore, you pay the most uh, expensive part for it. I guess that's fair, maybe? So instead of houses and hotels, you build, I believe, toad houses and peach castles. There it is, okay. So that's how they work it in. <clears throat> so both of those, if you are interested in coming out on August 1st, if you have someone who's got a birthday around that time or you want to start your Christmas shopping a bit early, there you go. Sure. Or just wait and see if uh, your favorite YouTuber uh, gets to review them and uh, go from there with that as your uh, purchasing guidance. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few of those old 
like really old kind of uh Milton Bradley or Hasbro games that seem to get, you know, all sorts of different new licensing deals and like have a new extra layer of rules slapped on top. Like Yahtzee's another one. Absolutely. Like what was the one recently played Deadpool Yahtzee? Yes. Like that battle, it's battle Yahtzee. Yeah, it's weird. It's kind of it's fun. It's different than regular Yahtzee, but it's you know, like it's still like Deadpool branded and it's it's weird how like it takes a licensing deal for them to kind of spice up the game with a new more interesting set of rules on top of it. Because you'd think that they would just try something different that wasn't branded anyways, right? Like I don't know, like not not that this Monopoly version has anything different, but like you'd think that like even without Mario, why why didn't they try to release some sort of like Jenga Tower challenge or something like it could be called some non-branded thing, I guess. But but I guess like I also understand how marketing works, and it's like, well, you know, yeah, you can release a new weird version of a thing and people won't buy it, or you can just release the Mario version of a thing and people will be more interested in looking at it, going, "What's this Mario Jenga?" Absolutely. So yeah, I, I get it. I mean, if they uh, redid Yahtzee and just released it as Battle Yahtzee. That would raise some eyebrows, but if it's Deadpool Battle Yahtzee, then it makes more sense. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, Deadpool's like, you know, a a weird, like, crazy person. So yeah, of course it makes sense that he'd be battling against people in Yahtzee. I wonder if some of these these brands, these well-established tabletop brands and games, are maybe just a bit too well-established to really tinker with too much and release them under the same standard banner. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of like a bit of a problem. Like, if you look at the more... I'm sure we've talked about this before, but like more European board gaming, that's where all like the fun games actually are, like and have been for the last 10 years or so, because they're different and they're weird. Like one of my favorites is Carcassonne. Carcassonne is like you're literally just like putting roads and cities together. It sounds boring, but it's really fun because it's like, you know, everyone kind of is just like screwing with each other. Like, oh, you want to build a city here? Well, Gonna put this piece that makes it so that you have to finish this city, or else you get no <laughs> points. Oh crap! And I wasted two guys on this city. Oh no! Ah. So like things like that, or you know, like why can't they add like have some sort of like different version of Monopoly? Because Monopoly's not really fun. Does anyone really like Monopoly? I don't know too many people who actually play Monopoly now, and I wonder if uh, with the rise in popularity of these European-style board games, and just really uh, the new wave, a new generation of board gaming that yeah. we have seen for the past couple of years, and we'll see, well, maybe not immediately now in the COVID times, but coming out of the COVID times, once there's the ability to, to get together in groups again yeah. and have game nights, uh, it will be popular once again. Monopoly is not top of mind. No. Monopoly is not something that people are clamoring to get together, playing, say, hey, let's have a Monopoly night. No. Sometimes it ends in fisticuffs, and that's why you don't play it. Yeah. I mean, Monopoly, what's the joke? That Monopoly, you know, has caused more family fights than, like, all these other things combined? (laughs) Insert funny reference here. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah. Some of these games really, like, do, like... I don't know. It's maybe that's like the secret takeaway from this story where it's like, yeah, it's very interesting that these games have, you know, um, are getting these licensing deals, but is that enough to make people actually want to play them? I wonder if it's similar to the Lego problem too. 
Yeah. Where the traditional Lego sets have kind of fallen by the wayside in favor of the, uh, the licensed, uh, box sets, the, uh, unique property deals done with, you know, Nintendo we spoke of last week or whatever else. I think in Lego's defense though, at least Lego is a system that's compatible with itself no matter what. So this like is you, true. You can, like, once you've built the big crazy, like, Lord of the Rings set or Star Wars set or whatever, if you want, I mean, if you're someone of our age, you'd probably build it and then just leave it together for the rest of time and just leave it there as like a display piece. But, you know, if you're a kid that gets something crazy like that, there's nothing saying that you wouldn't want to take it apart and maybe start combining pieces, right? Like, you might want to mix it in with your city pieces or your whatever other architecture pieces or maybe even your um, your Technics pieces where you can just put a motor on it or something. Like, ooh, motorized Statue of Liberty. <laughs> The motorized Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> Do some damage with that bad boy. Look out, Helm's Deep. Here I come. <laughs> oh, man. All these ends really moving. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, Monopoly is also a, a thing that has had so many different licensed editions uh, and other spinoffs, just unlicensed spinoffs too, like Dogopoly or whatever, Beeropoly, yeah. Cityopoly for whatever city you live in. Yeah, and they're all not a different game. They're all the same game. Absolutely. The mechanics are the same. The rules are the same. There's no, there's nothing different. The cachet is, oh, there's different artwork, different pieces. Okay. But that doesn't really change anything. Like, yeah, I don't know. Don't want to turn this into let's shit all over Monopoly. (laughs) But I mean, Monopoly sucks. I'm just going to put that out there. If you like Monopoly and have valid reasons why, please let us know. Yes, let us, uh, what are we missing? What, uh, what is the charm that, uh, you are seeing and connecting with and, uh, we just aren't for whatever reason? Uh, let us know your thoughts on Monopoly. Email us info at the arcade show.com or let us know through the social medias. We are on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. Uh, to matters of game business, as Microsoft is preparing to launch the Xbox Sex later this year. Oh, sorry, I mean the Xbox Series X, but who has time to say all those letters? Let's just call it the Xbox Sex. Let's call it the XXX. The XSX, which sounds like some weird Mazda model. Yeah. Or some weird uh, off-roading rig. It's a sports version of the Celica. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, the uh, the Xbox X coming out later this year. So Microsoft taking kind of an unusual step. Uh, we've seen where times in past where one generation will be supplanted by the other one. That's fine, but you'll still be able to get the hardware for a period of time from the old generation for a year, two years, however long into the new generation after that new gen is released. Microsoft nipping that in the bud and probably realizing they've got too many models going on as they are likely now wanting to ramp up production of the Xbox Series X models. So they announced this week, actually confirming reports to The Verge, that they are officially discontinuing and will no longer be manufacturing uh, or selling the Xbox One S, or sorry, the Xbox One X, or the Xbox One S All Digital Edition. So again, the Xbox One X and all digital edition of the Xbox One S are now on the outs. 
the regular Xbox One S is still going to be available. That is still being made. That is still being sold. So if you want one of these two particular editions of the Xbox One, perhaps you just have to have an Xbox now and you can't wait until the fall when the next gen comes out, whatever your situation might be, uh, get on these now while they are still on shelves of some retailers. Otherwise, you're going to be S-O-L. So, yeah. Um, I mean, as it was, Microsoft had a rather cluttered landscape of models and editions of the Xbox One. Yeah. To the point where it's like, might be a little bit confusing when you're, if you don't, if you might have had a 360 or something and you're just kind of like, maybe now that it's near the end of the life cycle of it, of the Xbox, you know, one, I might want to actually grab one. And it's like, which one do I get? The SX, the X, the <laughs> Series X, the, just the one, the, cause there was a bunch of them. There was, there was too many. Like they started off life, uh, with just the regular Xbox One, and that was fine. And then two, three years into it, they redid it and had the Xbox One S, which is really just the slim. They slimmed down the, the design and bulk of it. Okay, fine, happens with every system. Yep, makes sense. And then they did that, uh, kind of mini refresh with the Xbox One X which was like, hey, it's an in-between. It's a bit more power, but it's not quite next-gen, so then what are you paying the extra money for, really? HDR, just better HDR, I think, was uh, one of the selling points. It's kind of like the PlayStation 4 Pro. Exactly. Uh, For some reason, both gens had to have a mid-system refresh. For whatever reason. Don't really know if it moved the needle too much. Obviously not, because there's still next-gens coming out. So... Take that for whatever it's worth, but there's still at least going to be the Xbox One S, the regular one. Uh, the all-digital one is being discontinued. The Xbox One X also being discontinued. Uh, as I said before, likely that Microsoft is wanting that manufacturing space for the next model. Also, really would appreciate if Microsoft redid some of their naming schemes. That gets really confusing when you have to talk about those three different models in the same sentence. Yeah. That is terrible. Do not like. <laughs> Thumbs down. Yes. One star. Would not recommend. Would not recommend, no. Uh, but something you'll be able to play on your Xbox uh, One and your Xbox Series X when it comes out this fall, as it now has a date. The big game this fall from Ubisoft, Watch Dogs Legion. Uh, it is coming out this fall, as I said, and has an official release date of October 29th of 2020. This is the year of our crazy lord. Dark Lord, call it whatever you will. Dark Lord is good. Uh, so that is, uh, again, a game that we haven't really spoken about too much because it's been, I guess, quietly worked on at Ubisoft, and Ubisoft has their own set of issues to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good place to work. Nope. Unless you're cis white male. <laughs> and in management. Upper, upper management. Yeah. When you're there, you're golden. That's why you get the golden parachutes. Anything below that is, yeah, expendable. Not, yeah, expendable. Not great. Bad, as it were. Bad, yes. If you don't know what we're referencing, just check any headline relating to Ubisoft, really from the past, what, two weeks? I think two weeks, two, three weeks is really when it's started to come out. The reports that they had a lot of bad managers. Yeah. And just bad people. 
Yeah. That's all. We're yeah, not going to go into detail. Yeah, we don't need to go into detail right now. We're, uh, but just know that there's a lot of companies out there that are bad companies. That's right. They're not alone. No. I mean, the one that got me recently too was the, uh, how apparently Cards Against Humanity is not great to work for either. That was surprising too. Yeah. I thought they were unionized. I think they are unionizing. And also just, you know, some accusations of, you know, maybe sexual harassment and stuff levied against Max Temkin, you know, the, the founder of the company and stuff, which came after them appearing to be a pretty cool company otherwise. Like they did a good PR job for themselves before that until people finally came forward and were like, no, it's actually garbage to work here. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, this is not new to 2020 though. We're, we're used to finding out that a lot of people are actually garbage. You know, it was, it's been happening in Hollywood for a few years and now it's, you know, the gaming industry, it's catching up. You know, um, needs to happen. It does. There needs to be a reckoning. Yeah. Uh, burn everything down to start new. Yep. And, uh, start new, better structures. So Ubisoft at least will want uh, to, I guess, talk about Watch Dogs Legion this fall and not any of that other yucky stuff. Again, Watch Dogs Legion coming out on October 29th. Looks interesting. Again, you play, uh, well, it's a game with permadeath, but as you kind of jump from uh, one member of, uh, I believe, DeadSec to the other to the other to uh, really cause civil unrest in London. Yeah. Near future London with Brexit just ravaging London. As it is slash will be slash is yeah yeah well i think the full effects of brexit have really yet to come to fruition yeah but i think we know what's going to happen probably won't be good no no but uh one last news item to uh get to here uh we spoke of board games a couple times throughout the course of this program and uh, one of the really popular ones that uh, I think has helped usher in this new era of popular modern board gaming and tabletop gaming is Settlers of Catan. Absolutely. Which has a couple spin-offs, has a couple different variations. I believe there's the Star Trek one. Uh, there's a couple add-ons and expansions to the base one. But most everyone knows Settlers of, of Catan or just for short, Catan. Yeah. Who has time to say Settlers of you say Catan, you know what someone's talking about. Yeah, if you don't, then you can say Settlers of Catan. But generally, if you say Catan, people know what you're talking about. Certainly. So we're talking about Catan because uh, perhaps you also know this other name, Niantic. They are the makers of AR games, most notably Pokemon Go, that uh, big sensation that is actually still doing pretty okay, even though it's not quite the height of its popularity. Yeah, well, all of their games, I think, are still doing okay. Their others being, you know, the, the Harry Potter Wizards Unite, as well as their first one, Ingress, which... True, too. You know, it's still around. People are still playing it. I'm sure it still has a user base. Got them uh, rolling on the AR game uh, landscape. Yep. So the next AR game they are working on is something called Catan World Explorers. So it's kind of taking Catan from the board game to the real world. So this new themed take on uh, on the AR formula will use the same map, same locations, all that stuff, but it's going to turn the real world into a giant Catan board game. So various areas that uh, you visit will have you as the as the gamer, the user, the player collecting the resources from Catan. Brick, lumber, grain, ore, and wool, and you'll be able to trade those with other players to eventually build settlements 
and then eventually upgrade those into cities. Uh, there is some team gameplay to this as well. You'll be able to collect victory, uh, victory points at both local and global levels. And Niantic's website is currently live for the game, so you uh, are able to register for it at launch. It will have a beta very soon, and that's basically all we know about it at this point. So it's a neat idea. I'm kind of interested in this. I like Catan. It's actually one of my more favorite uh, of the modern board games and tabletop, tabletop games out there. So I'm intrigued by this, although part of me has some trepidation, for I have played Catan several times in my life. And inevitably, what happens is that either I myself or someone else playing it will just kind of get stuck. In that, as you play through uh, Catan, you need resources to do things. To trade with other players, or trade with the bank, and to build roads, build cities, build settlements, uh, get cards, uh, or you know, trade for cars and whatnot, but you need resources. And what, uh, uh, in my experience, what often happens is either I or someone else will get stuck in an area and just kind of get one or two of something, but never enough of something. Yeah. So you might get stuck in the land of shitty wheat and you'll only ever get wheat and that's it. You'll have like 12 wheat, but you can't do anything because you need every other thing. Yeah. Cause the things that you need to build are based on stone or whatever else. And it's like, ah, crap. Yeah, you you need brick and wood to build roads. But if you got wheat, well, you're just stuck in the land of shitty wheat. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out and translates into the real world. There's also one of the fears with Catan is because it's kind of been around so long and, you know, most people kind of, after they play it a few times, they kind of figure out strategies for themselves that either, you know, Everyone has a winning strategy, and it's sort of often boils down to who gets to do whatever first. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's not really a game that has a lot of replayability in a short period of time, in my opinion anyways. Like, I don't, like, I don't mind Catan, like, I don't think it's a bad game or anything, but it's not, it's not a game that you want to play like five rounds of in one night. No, no, one round is enough. Yeah. Because that one round could take half an hour, it could take over an hour. Yeah, but once you're done, you're like, let's let's move on to something else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fully understand, uh, we'll see how that is remedied in an AR game approach. Um, how do they apply it to the real world? Are Hopefully it's not a stupid thing where, like, you have to drive across your city or whatever just to get a different <laughs> resource type. Like, okay, it's all wood in this northeastern corner of Winnipeg. It's like nothing else. It's like, well... Okay, so, huh. Or do they just uh, zoom out a bit more and just label, say, the entire Canadian prairies as wheat? (laughs) And you have to go to the West Coast to get wood. (laughs) And you have to go to Ontario to get uh, brick and uh, go to the Maritimes to get ore. (laughs) Or like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. That would be stupid. It would be stupid. <laughs> Cross the continent to get all the resources. Yes. Like, oh man. Now my brain is filled with a bunch of dumb ideas for games that no one would ever actually want to play. Like cross-country Canada, but it's actually you have to drive for real with your phone. 
So that's just a uh, new take on Desert Bus. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego, but you have to actually fly to the different places? <laughs> to catch Carmen San yes. Diego. <laughs> By the time you get there, she's gone. Yeah, of course she's gone because you were just on an 18-hour flight. Oh, no, now she's in Morocco. Oh, crap, I can't afford that. <laughs> I can't even afford to get home. <laughs> well, shit. Well, better become a starving artist. But you win again, Carmen San Diego. <laughs> Stole the Eiffel Tower and my money. Yeah, all the money in my bank account and also my pants. Great. Europe's weird. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, uh, well, that's all we have to say about uh, Catan, uh, the, the AR game, Catan World Explorers, but, uh, and Europe being weird. But uh, I think this is a fine time to get into the uh, next piece of business, as is always the piece of business towards the end of the program, that being the blast from the past, the moment in time, the section of the show where we like to fet and celebrate some interesting items celebrating milestone anniversaries. These could be movies, TV shows, video games, albums, uh, things that strike our particular fancy that uh, seem worth talking about. And we have two items this week. One is uh, kind of an old album. The other is... A not really old, but kind of semi-old, but very unknown TV series. Uh, which of the two would you like to start with this week? Well, we could talk about the TV series to start with. All right. Because I, I do remember watching it at the time before I knew how crazy of a person Scott Adams was. I didn't mind Dilbert. You know, and if, if he, if he turned out to be more of a good person and less of like a, Well, I'm just going to say bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe less of a misogynist, maybe less of a homophobe. Just in general, like a not a bad person. I might relate to, you know, his main bread and butter, Dilbert, a little bit more. You know, as a software developer myself, you know, I've, I've dealt with managers and stuff in the past that have seemed kind of like, you know, the pointy-haired boss and... You know, I've had coworkers and stuff that are, you know, had like the awkward conversations and stuff like that. It's, you know, it, it does, it was a pretty good representation of that type of office culture and like, you know, techie people working in an office. Like, like it, it did accurately represent that when, you know, it's amazing that he got as much mileage out of it that he did, but yeah. And it's still going as a comic strip. Yeah, it is. Which is. Impressive, considering the comic strip, I think, launched in 89? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's been around for a long time. And probably will still keep going. Yeah. Like, I think it's just one of those mainstays now. It's just like, as long as there's newspapers, you're going to have Dilbert in them, I guess. Absolutely. So, uh, you've kind of let it out of the bag. We were talking about the Dilbert TV series. Do not feel bad if you do not recall this. Don't... You've never watched it. You don't even recall hearing about it, it lasted two seasons over the course of one year, but this was an animated series that I believe ran on USA Network or something like that in the States. Uh, and it did air in Canada for a while. I believe on probably what, Teletoon? Probably Teletoon. It might have been some other network, maybe Comedy Network or something, but something like that. But uh, it did run and... It was an enjoyable TV series. It was an enjoyable adaptation of the comic strip. I really liked it. Like, like there were things about it that I remember just, you know, very well. Like, it was a good adaptation. 
And just looking at it now, looking at the Wikipedia page, I didn't realize it at the time, but now in hindsight, it kind of makes sense. Larry Charles was one of the co-creators. Ah. So maybe that makes sense why it was of such high quality. Explains uh, some of the comedic influences. Yeah. And how you take a very simple, very sedate uh, three-panel comic strip and adapt it into a half-hour animated sitcom. Yeah, exactly. Which, the animated sitcom was ridiculous and off the wall and really gave a lot of avenues to do anything you wanted, really, beyond just a three-panel comic strip. Really good voice cast, too, if oh I Oh, my to say. God, yes. Like Daniel Stern, Chris Elliott, Larry Miller, Gordon Hunt, Kathy Griffin, Jackie Hoffman, and Jason Alexander. Like, most of those are names that you've probably heard or know, bef- like, even now. That's a point I was going to raise about this cartoon once we got into it, is that this is one of the best cast, uh, best voice casts on a series. Like, most well cast, uh, actors and roles on a series that I can recall. Daniel Stern has the voice of Dilbert. Yeah. So Daniel Stern from Home Alone. Yeah, he's one of the two wet bandits. He, he was Daniel Stern doing the perfect, just monotone kind of, I don't want to say lifeless, but, uh, boring, office guy voice to Dilbert. Yeah. Chris Elliott as Dogbert, who you might more recently remember from Shit's Creek as, you know, Roland Shit. Absolutely. Um, uh, Dogbert being a character you can really do anything with. Yeah, he's just sort of like, he's Dilbert's venting sounding board who, like, basically oftentimes is the voice of reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry Miller as the pointy-haired boss. The best casting. The best casting. I can't argue. That like, is, out of everything in this show, that is the best casting. Yeah, like, you, you, like you, you might not know the name Larry Miller in your head, but like, just look at his Wikipedia page and look at his picture, then you'll be like, oh, that guy. Yep. Perfect. Makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, who else was on there that we mentioned? Kathy Griffin. Kathy Griffin was Alice, though apparently she's uncredited. Yeah, I think she was on a, uh, I think she was on what, Just Shoot Me at the same time. Yeah. So contractual conflicts between the NBC network and also the fact that I think this, as I said, aired on the USA network in America, which would matter. So, but Kathy Griffin as Alice, the, I'm really not caring about you or any of your shit co-worker in the office. Yeah. Entertaining. Uh, the one that stood out to me that I didn't realize was Jason Alexander was the voice of Catbert. Yeah. And he plays that, uh, like Catbert, of course, like the evil, uh, director of HR, director of HR, you know, really, really well played. I think just plays it like a subdued evil. Yeah. And so, Here's the weird thing, like, I forgot about this character, but looking at, you know, the the main cast and seeing who he played, like, Maurice LaMarche, of course, like, you know, he's a mainstay and voice actor. There's there's a couple of those mainstays in here. Tom Kenny played Rat Burton, Ashok, and additional, additional voices and stuff. Um, but, like, Maurice LaMarche, one of the characters he played was the world's smartest garbage man, which, if you remember that character, it, he was basically just, like, the Zen master who, when, like, Dilbert was freaking out in the morning about whatever, the garbage man would always come by with some, like, really sagely advice, and then would just go away, because he's a garbage man. <laughs> he's got a job to do. And, like, this things like that were, like, really weird, interesting ideas. 
just wise and smart beyond the role of being a garbage man. Yeah. And yeah, and then of course, like, a ton of guest stars showed up, like, not, not like to the degree of The Simpsons or like, um, Dr. Katz or anything like that, but still, like, a big list of guest stars, like, wide array too, like, you had like, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin as himself, like, Andy Dick was in there, Gilbert Gottfried was in there, Tom Green showed up at some point, Buck Henry played Dadbert, you know, the legendary Buck Henry. Cool. Uh, Jay Leno was himself at some point. Jerry Seinfeld played a role. Jerry Ryan played seven, a seven of nine alarm clock because of course, like it was contemporaneous to Voyager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Billy West was, you know, a vibrating chair salesman <laughs> in one episode. But yeah, um, and it, if I can just point out, it, in that voice cast of uh, additional voices uh, doing guest roles, it might seem all that Stone Cold Steve Austin did a voice, but this is during the attitude, quote-unquote, era of WWF, the Monday Night Wars. Stone Cold is a big force at the time, and also uh, Monday Night Raw aired on the USA Network. This cartoon also aired, I believe, on the USA Network. But, like, in case you were too young to know, like, it's possible that we might have someone that was born in 1999 or whatever, mm-hmm. like might've been born mid nineties and don't remember Steve Austin and the rock were huge stars back then. Absolutely. They, they transcended were, wrestling. They were a part of the culture. Like the, the rivalry that they had was like massive. Absolutely. And even on their own, they were huge stars. Yeah. I mean, the rock is still a huge star and Steve Austin, you know, he's still in the consciousness. He's got a podcast and he goes around and does stuff on the internet and stuff, but yeah, like they were both equally huge stars back in the day and back in the late nineties. So yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and they would do guest appearances on other shows. Uh, it, though Steve Austin being on Dilbert is kind of a weird one. I mean, I yeah. can see the corporate connection and whatnot, but still kind of weird. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, it, it was a weird show and I, I'm going to try to seek it out again because I did enjoy it. And like looking through the episode list, there was one episode that I, in particular, that I did remember. Um, it was the Elbonian trip when they went to Elbonia. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, it's basically, I, I think it was something to do with that's where they outsourced all of their tech support or something. It was like, you know, a late nineties take on the fact that tech support was being outsourced to places like India and China and stuff, and which still happens. It's just, a, it's a thing. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, according to Wikipedia, in the episode synopsis, they say, Dilbert, Alice, Wally, Dogbert, and the pointy-haired boss take a business trip to Elbonia. Alice and Dilbert attempt to free the Elbonian people, uh, whereas Alice adopts an Elbonian baby while Dilbert introduces the workers to human rights, while Wally becomes a prophet. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and, and Wally being basically just an incompetent crazy person. Yes. That, yeah. that translated actually really well to the TV show. Cause like you, it's sort of mentioned a little bit here and it's very bland in the comic, but the TV show, it goes to crazy extremes. Yeah. In the, in the standard three panel comic strip, you can't really give Wally that much, that much life or color. Like, yeah. Literally or figuratively. You can't give any of them that much life or color. It's just basically very plain archetypes of like Dilbert's the smart guy who's underappreciated. The boss is the idiot. Alice is just kind of like 
the person who's done with everyone's shit, and then Wally's the crazy person that doesn't really do any work, but like still you know, is there, still is there for some reason. But yeah, like they really expand out on those archetypes quite a bit, you know, in the in the TV show. And no, I'm not I'm not u- using this as an endorsement of Dilbert now or Dilbert in general. Just the TV show. Just the TV show as it existed from 1999, ending on July 25th, 2000. Yeah. I am going to say, once again, Scott Adams is not a good person. He, he has his viewpoints, and they are not uh, in alignment with modern society. Yeah. He's free to have his viewpoints. and Though he shouldn't be. Well, but, but he is. He is. He, he is. Uh, they simply are not representative of what we feel would be standard modern views. Yeah. No, okay, now, I, I shouldn't say he shouldn't be allowed his views. I don't want to take anyone's right to think whatever they want away from them, but they're problematic views, is all I'm going to say. They are out of line with what modern society and where modern society should be. Yeah, exactly. There, we'll we'll say that. Yeah. So that's Dilbert, the TV series from 1999, ending on July 25th, 2000. Yes, the boring comic strip in your paper, if or your parents' newspaper that they get on the weekends. That one about the weird guy and the developer in the office and whatnot, who they're you're never sure what they make. That was a cartoon series. Yep. Yeah. Seek it out. It was actually quite funny. But yeah. another item we will move on and speak of is the older of the two. It is a musical album that came out on July 28th, 1975. This is an album from Black Sabbath. It is called Sabotage. Yes. Arguably, in terms of their first run, like in their initial run of several albums where they did them with Ozzy Osbourne, I would say that this is their last super solid album. Mm-hmm. Like... Every album up to this point, including this one, was a solid album. I mean, they started to get weird and experimental, you know, around like volume four through this one. This one is no exception. And the cover kind of will explain that as well. We'll get to that in a second. But yeah, this is probably their last truly great Aussie album. I mean, the other two had had their moments, like Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die had moments, had good songs, Mm -hmm. but weren't like solid from start to finish. I would argue, Sabotage, solid from start to finish. Solid from start to finish, uh, though I don't know if there's any tracks in particular that would stand out as... Am I going insane? Hole in the Sky? Hole in the Sky is pretty good. Symptom of the Universe? As ones that maybe stand out and are going to be long-lasting? I think so. Stand out compared to some of the others? Like, I think there are pieces... That makes the whole a solid album. But on their own, um, I don't know. None of them stood out as being really exceptional. Like, when I was listening to it again recently, solid B to B+. That's fair. I mean, yeah. I'm a big Black Sabbath fan, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. Like, this is not their best album. No. Like, I would argue that Sabbath Bloody Sabbath is maybe their best album. But, like, everyone has their own opinion on what the best Black Sabbath album is, and then, then of course, you can go, what's the best Ozzy album? What's the best Dio album? What's the best after-whatever-Dio album? You know, like, there's, you know, an argument for everything, but, yeah. This isn't... I, I don't think this is their best Ozzy album. It's a good, solid album. It's not their worst album, though, that's for sure. 
And that's true. This was what their sixth album. I think this was their sixth. Yeah. Sixth. Uh, so their first run of what six albums? Pretty solid. That's a good career. Yeah, for any band to basically have six albums where you're like in the books with critics going like thumbs up the whole time, like you're in the company of like Led Zeppelin and CCR and like pretty much you know not too many other art. The Beatles, like Beatles, maybe the Rolling Stones, maybe the Rolling Stones, like the first six, however many albums, just to basically just be like solid five stars, like. But that, that's very rare, rarefied air to be up there, to be like, yeah, you've got, you've cemented your place in music history now. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned this was uh, an album with uh, uh, a very interesting cover as well. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, I think it's one of those weird things, like, you see that sometimes, because I think in the 70s was particularly bad for people trying to be well people being kind of pretentiously artistic or trying to trying to be more artistic than i think they actually were mm-hmm. and then maybe having an idea that they really wanted to get across and then just doing a really really bad job of executing it so this album cover to set it up which uh, we are describing a still image which on a podcast Probably doesn't work the best, but stick with us. You've stuck with us thus far, and there's only a few minutes left, so just keep it going. But this album cover is uh, the members of Black Sabbath standing with a giant mirror behind them, or what is uh, meant to be a giant mirror on, I guess, the wall behind them. Now, normally on the mirror, if you're standing in front of a mirror, what appears behind you on the front surface of the mirror would be the back of your head. Yeah. That's what the mirror is seeing. And instead, what's on this mirror behind the members of Black Sabbath is the member of Black Sabbath. Yeah, the same picture where, like, the mirror is looking at their backs. The mirror image, like, it's it's the same image laid background. But it gets worse than that <laughs> because it's, I, I don't... There's just, the back cover. There's the back cover. It's, it's, not, it's not shown on the Wikipedia page, but... Like, this is one of those things I always thought was ridiculous, because my dad has this album on vinyl, and I remember looking at it when I was a kid, thinking, well, that's stupid. <laughs> we look on the back of it. It always cracks me up, though, when I think about it, because it's like, did they intend for this to be as funny as it is? Because it's really funny. I'm sure at the time, there were some conversations about just how deep and meaningful that image was. Yeah, so the back cover is their backs. It's the front cover image, but just on the other side. So it's like they took, they, I don't know if they had two cameras set up or if they, if they were just basically like, okay, boys, sit there. We'll take, we'll take a picture of you in the front. Now we're going to walk around to the back and take a picture of the back. Don't worry. We'll do the rest. And then they're just, they basically cut out the backgrounds, whatever, put them in front of a mirror frame and then put the front image in front of and behind in like quote unquote inside the mirror. Mm-hmm. And then like, which makes no sense. No, it makes no sense. But then the back is them like their backs. Like you see the back side of like, if, if you were to go around or if you were inside the mirror, you see them sitting, looking at the mirror, like the mirror people sitting, staring at the backs of <laughs> the people outside of the mirror. It's, it's weird. And I don't know what, like I, 
Black Sabbath did a lot of drugs back then. <laughs> it's very well documented. And it might have made sense in some sort of like cocaine haze. Because that was a drug that they did a lot of. True. If you were to read a book called Iron Man, um, it has some subtitle, but it's it's the, the autobiography by Tony Iommi, the, the guitarist and producer and really kind of the father of modern heavy metal in many ways. Driving force of Black Sabbath. Yep. Main songwriter, main riff writer, yeah, producer. Yeah. He, he wrote all about their exploits while making all their albums and the amount of money that they would spend on cocaine and just houses where they would do nothing but do drugs for months at a time while holed up in a house on, you know, some tropical island. <laughs> it's crazy stories. And write a song called Snowblind. Yes. That is not about being in a blizzard. No. No, it's not. Just like Sweet Leaf is not about some sort of tobacco, <laughs> despite what Geezer Butler tells people. <laughs> He's lying to all of them. He sure is. So this was an attempt at a very artistic uh, album cover. Kind of reminds me of Coven, like the band Coven that tried to be artistic with their witchcraft and whatnot, but didn't uh, didn't really execute it too well. Now. Coven is an entirely different topic for, of discussion for another day because Coven is a very entertaining band for all the wrong reasons. Oh, yeah. Now, this is an album... I mean, musically, they didn't really back it up, although uh, uh, their album, what, Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reap Souls, yep. uh, which is worth a listen out of curiosity. Yeah, because the whole second, like, side two of the whole album is called Satanic Mass, and it's just a 20-minute long, well, satanic mass. I don't think it's an accurate satanic mass. I think it's like, you know, 1960s sensationalism hyperbole. Because <laughs> it sounds like actually a Catholic mass where they were where they basically just invert everything where it's like, oh, Lord, it's always like, oh, Satan, and like, oh, Lord, bless us all. And it's like, oh, Satan, damn us all to hell. Like, <laughs> stupid things like that. But yeah. Yeah. Taking themselves too seriously. Yeah. With comedic consequences. But also, like, not to... One of the other parts about this album cover that makes it so ridiculous is what everyone is wearing. Because apparently, the band was attending what they thought was a test shoot that day. Oh! And they they didn't even discuss what they were going to be wearing, so, you know... That was just whatever people were wearing that day. Like, Bill Ward, I think, was wearing his girlfriend's, like, leggings. <laughs> and Ozzy <laughs> has, like, this weird, like, flowing... I don't even know what you'd call that. Blouse? Blouse dress? One-piece, like, shawl or something? Like, I mean, Geezer and Tony are dressed pretty well, but, you know, the other guys aren't. <laughs> it's like, what the hell are you doing? Which, you know, people have apparently made fun of them over the years because of it. But, yeah. And deservedly so. Yeah. It's just like, it, well, you didn't know you were f- shooting your album cover picture that day. And I guess you didn't talk about anything. You just showed up. Fine, I guess. But whatever. Probably should have talked about and coordinated better. <laughs> Probably. 
Maybe they did and no one remembered, or at least the other two didn't remember because of the drugs. Yeah. Which is a distinctly real possibility. It very much is, yes. So if you want to uh, see this album for yourself, dig out, search out, Google search for Sabotage from Black Sabbath, the album, their sixth album that came out on July 28th, 1975. Uh, and before that, we spoke of Dilbert, the animated series that is marking its 20th anniversary, having ended its two-season, basically one-year run uh, on July 25th of the year 2000. Yes, Dilbert, that terrible three-panel comic strip, was an animated series that was actually quite good, with one of the most stellar and well-cast voice casts of any animated series in the 2000s. Yeah, just throwing that out there. If you want to fight me on that, you're free to. Just don't do it in person. I bruise easily. You can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com. Or hit us up on social medias. We, uh, we are on Twitter at the Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Arcade Show. And, uh, just one quick programming note before we leave you for this week. Uh, next week is at least where we are a civic holiday. So we will be taking that off to observe it and, uh, enjoy one last blast of whatever we can enjoy for, uh, um, I guess, summer holidays and summer break here where we live. Hopefully you will have a summer break or at least a long weekend as well and uh, can enjoy it safe and responsibly. And we shall join you again in uh, two weeks hence, or at least the plan is to join you again in two weeks hence on Friday, April 7th. So until then, good night, everybody. August 7th. August 7th. What did I say? Not April 7th. April 7th. Too many A's. Sure. Again, time. <laughs> right? Yes. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>